we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. And welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, our interview with Warren Meyer. How's it going, Ron? Very good, Ed. I'm looking forward to this. Yes, and I'm going to say Happy Thanksgiving now because we're going to be off next week, so we'll we'll get that that out of the way. We're going to rerun our show, Screw Genomics. But I'm real excited today to have on our show Warren Meyer, who I I I thought a friend of mine from college had sent me a link to one of his blog posts, probably four or five years ago, maybe longer. And I sent him an email earlier this week asking, hey, I just, I mean, I'm doing a show with Coyote Blogs, Warren Meyer, and were you the one who introduced me? And he said, nope, wasn't me. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, I'm pretty sure it was somebody else, but let me get the bio out of the way because we're really looking forward to talking to this guy. He's got a very uh, eclectic resume, talks about a lot of stuff on his blog. And I think it's going to just be a real, real good fit here on the Soul of Enterprise. So since 2003, Warren Meyer has been the owner and president of Recreational Resource Management, RRM, which I love this, Ron, is a private operator of 150 public parks, campgrounds, and recreational facilities in 11 states. <laughs> Gotta love that. At RRM, he has worked with the National Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service, so maybe we'll ask him some questions about the forest fires out in California right now, and a number of state and local recreational agencies. Prior to RRM, he held a series of senior marketing and planning roles at Allied Signal Honeywell and Emerson Electronic. He ran several internet companies in the late 1990s and was a senior, senior engagement manager for McKinsey and Company. So again, another connection point we talk a lot about uh, big consulting as well. Warren has an MBA from Harvard Business School and a mechanical engineering degree with a heavy focus on economics from Princeton. In his spare time, he is the writer of three different blogs. The Coyote blog, as I mentioned earlier, which started, as he puts it, in the dinosaur age of blogs in 2004. And his focus is generally on the intersection of businesses and economics. He's also written extensively about the climate, and I hope we, we get a chance to talk to him about that as well. He's done some fantastic presentations and videos on being a lukewarmer, which is what I classify myself as as, as well. But mostly we're going to talk to him about his works on uh, blogging, including Coyote Blog and Climate Exceptic. He also has a novel called BMOC. Uh, so we look forward maybe to ask him some questions about that. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Warren Meyer. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, first, Warren, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, yourself and recreation resource management. Where where you don't write about much of that on Coyote Blog. So so talk to me a little bit about that that company. Uh, years and years ago, uh, I was looking for something to do, and I got pulled as a consulting. And this guy said, "I read your blog." And or I read something else I'd written proto before the blog. I had an email or something I was sending out or something on a bulletin board and said, I saw that you're really into, you know, kind of talking about privatization. Well, you know, there's some opportunities where the government is shutting down parks. You want to put your money where your mouth is and, and try to do something with this. And I sort of got sucked into it and eventually 
took over some contracts and formed this company in which what we do is we actually privately operate public parks. And, and the traditional concession, like in the park services, oh, you take over a hotel, but the park service still runs the whole park around it. You Just some guy running the hotel. We actually run the whole park from the gatehouse in. We pay the insurance. We pay the utilities. We do all the maintenance. We do absolutely everything. And then we pay the government a certain percentage of revenues for the right to to collect the revenues and try to make a profit off of it. So interesting, you know. It, it, you know, my I'm a I'm a staunch libertarian, as are I think you are libertarian leaning anyway. And what oftentimes when I hear of p- private public partnership, I think crony capitalism. But this sounds like this is actually a pretty good deal you got going here. Well, yeah, I do stare at my navel from time to time. My readers know that about once a year, I'll I'll put a particular deal that gets put in front of me, and where I'll say, "Well, geez, am I being a crony here? What am I doing?" But but really, a lot of the stuff we have are parks that. Take a place called Roland Cooper State Park in Alabama. It was completely closed. The state of Alabama ran out of money to run it. Um, it's in the poorest county in the state, which in Alabama probably makes it one of the poorest counties in the whole United States. Uh, and it's, it's the kind of heavy black population county that really doesn't get a lot of public funding you know, from anybody, no matter what people talk about, you know, in their campaigns. And we went down there and saw a business opportunity and we agreed to reopen it. And we put, we put you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars because there was years of deferred maintenance in it. And we're running it for a profit and paying the, 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 the government 8%. So they're getting money they didn't have before. The, the local population is just thrilled to have their park back and be able to have fishing tournaments and gator tournaments there and all kinds of things like that. And we're, we've got a business going and doing something fun, you know, doing recreation. Outstanding. That's that's great. Great story on that. And well, might, might as well ask you, since I brought it up in the in the intro, the U.S. Forest Service, do you have any thoughts on, you know, and Ron's, by the way, he we were talking about this is can literally smell the fires out there. Um there's been a lot of finger pointing back and forth on is this because of the mismanagement of the park service versus you know the people trying to save their houses and not allowing controlled burns to happen any thoughts on that you know i'm not a huge expert on it i do know that the whole fire situation is in the forest service is just dysfunctional and they would say the same thing i mean they don't really have the resources for it so at the end of the day, once a fire starts, everybody gets pulled out of their accounting jobs to go fight the fire. And when they fight the fire, there's just absolutely no financial accountability for anything because, because suddenly they're off the books. It's not a budgeted activity, and just crazy stuff happens. So, you know, they're not very good at fighting fires in a, in a cost-effective way. And their whole planning process about land management is, is really become dysfunctional and that's what i see it's just very difficult for the forest service to to with all the different competing interests and to be fair to them the forest service probably spends more time in court than any other agency in the u.s government because they have this explicit like the park service has to only do a few things the forest service has right in the enabling legislation is your job is to balance mining against recreation against conservation against timber interests and then one other i can't remember what their fifth goal is but but there you know those five uses are at each other's throats the environmentalists don't want the you know the the the, the recreate, recreators in there they don't want the logging but the people who are worried about their houses do want the logging to reduce 
and and so the the agency just gets brought to a standstill, and they can't do the smallest make the smallest decisions without being in court. So I don't know how you get past that because, you know, what's being demanded is, is a whole new level of, of planning and management of the forest like they used to do in the early 20th century. And, and the whole legal and political environment of the Forest Service isn't what it was in the early 20th century. I don't know how they're going to pull it off. Yeah, it sounds like a, a, a worse mess than just the Fed, right, which is to balance unemployment and interest rates. Now that it sounds like there's there's like you said there's five or six competing interests for the, for these guys, right? Uh, it's 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 crazy. And so I just try to keep my head down in that organization because the uh, because the the fighting between those interests is just astronomical and, and every one of them has lobbyists i mean the the ski industry has lobbyists and the 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 atv riders have lobbyists and you know the environmentalists have huge lobbying i mean even even the pack mule guys who i happen to be in my in my um trade group that i operate even the guys that have pack rules have, mules have to have lobbyists because the environmentalists don't even want pack mules you know coming up into the forest for you know trips with riders so it's a it's a crazy situation and, and Must be all I, the methane they produce. It's not at all surprising to me after years of seeing all these recreation food fights where nothing, no decision can be made that we're kind of at gridlock over how to even manage the forest or even the basic, the basic necessities of of what the forest was set up to do, which was really to manage the manage the land, manage the resource. Yeah, amazing stuff. Well, I've got about uh, three minutes left in my segment with you, and I ho- hopefully I'll be able to set this up for, for Ron to perhaps continue on this a little bit. I, and I, I love uh, watch the uh, video that you presented, I think, at Claremont. Was it Claremont State College? More, uh, Claremont it was, it was two or three years ago. So, Claremont McKenna, yeah, the okay. Pom- the Pomona, the five Claremont colleges over there. Right, right. Okay. And th- this is a great presentation. I think this is really a compendium of a lot of your work. So explain, um, and again, about three minutes in this segment, what do you mean when you call yourself a lukewarmer? What does that mean to you? Well, one of the funny things is when people say, oh, you're a climate denier. Well, I said, I don't know. If you tell me I deny something, you have to give me a proposition. And they'll try, well, do you deny climate change? And I say, no. Do you deny man-made climate change? And I'll say, no. Do you deny man-made global warming? And I'll say, no. And I say, so, so, so I do deny something. What I deny is the catastrophe. And so there's many of us that for years have raised our hand and say, look, there, there's real problems in the science, not the fact that CO2 causes warming, because we know it causes incremental warming, um, and as do other actions of man, land use and all kinds of things change the climate. But, but the problem is the exaggerated forecast based on these what's this, these positive feedback assumptions. They, they assume these crazy amounts of positive feedback so that small bits of warming from, from CO2 lead to these enormous warming and catastrophic warming forecasts. And it's those enormous and catastrophic warming forecasts and those crazy amounts of positive feedback that we, we object to and we think are exaggerated. And, and I don't think you can make good public policy, especially on something like climate change, which would take a lot of, takes a lot of money to mitigate and, and fix and head off, it doesn't make any if you if you exaggerate you know one side of the equation you can't make good public policy decisions 
Yeah, you know, it's it was interesting. I've because I've heard this argument from a lot of people. Is like, and it goes something like this: Well, once the frozen tundra of Siberia gets released, then the methane just completely explodes off the chart, and therefore we're going to have this. And the research I've done, and I, and I think you have come to the same conclusion as well. That is a possibility, I suppose, but it's also a possibility that we get invaded by space aliens too. Right. I, I think there there's there's a difference between. People have forgotten, they're like, is it really, truly, do we understand this is being caused by this, or do we just think, well, it's, it's plausible that it might be caused? It's like whenever you have a big snowstorm and they say, well, that doesn't disprove global warming, it's plausible that we can come up with a plausible scenario where this huge major snowstorm was actually called, but caused by global warming because of this, this, and that. But that's not something you predicted in advance, it's not real... It's not real cause, causality, and the same problem exists on all these feedbacks, like the methane from the from the melting of the tundra, or or any number of different kinds of things we can discuss. And not to mention, just like the rest of the global warming equation, is they ignore the other half because there's also all these negative feedbacks, like cloud formation and other kinds of things that that could offset the warming from from CO2. And so there's there's it's all part of it. Methane warming is part of the equation. But it's a minor part that's being exaggerated, and, and that's, that's the problem we have. It's these small, minor things get blown out of proportion, and you yield these panicky uh, uh, forecasts that lead you to really bad public policy. Yep, great stuff, and, and hopefully we can talk more about that in the next coming segments, but we're already up against our break. This is flying by as I knew it would. We want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where we have previews to upcoming shows as well as all 218 previous episodes available for you to listen to. But right now, a word from our sponsor and the folks who do our great social media leading results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. Here We are here with Warren Meyer of the Coyote blog. And Warren, I'm going to pick up with you where Ed left off on the on the climate change. And we were talking during the break about this uh, Foundation for Economic Education article, Why We Need More Climate Change Skeptics. And his point was, you know, look, climate scientists aren't prophets. Uh, scientists have made many mistakes. You can go back to Rachel Carlson's book, Silent Spring, and the, how many people have died from the banning of DDT, uh, which is a great point. But he defines the 97% of climate scientists actively publishing in scientific journals. That's who the survey, I guess, was to with those questions that you pointed out. And and then he goes through and says, well, th- th- there's obviously a selection bias because the people publishing are going to be the ones that are you know advocating this theory and you're not going to see the skeptics, you're not going to see the counterclaims or even the counter evidence. And I, I just... Do you think it's become too political? Oh yeah, <laughs> but but well, for, before I get to that, on the ninety-seven percent, it, it's crazier than that because the the original time they did the study, they had hundreds or thousands of responses, and they and the ninety-seven percent was only defined by something like eighty-six or eighty-seven of the responses. They called everybody else out as not sort of counting as a real climate scientist for whatever reason uh, until and so the 97 was you know 86 out of 88 or I forgot the exact number but the crazier thing about it is the original study asked these guys two questions they said one has the world warmed over the last century and two has a good portion of that I can't remember the exact word they used but it wasn't majority it wasn't all it was something like has a substantial amount of that been due to man and those are both uh, many, many of the prominent skeptics I could name and, and that you see online, including me, who's not as prominent, but would answer both of these, yes, we would be in the 97%. I think the world's warmed over the last century. It's hard to deny it. And I think man has contributed a, a chunk, though not all, of to that warming. So, so we're, in a, we're in two completely different conversations. We're, we're, we're arguing this. We're not only having a big political food fight, but we're... we're, 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 we're Arguing about a straw man is is that the, the climate skeptics have been defined as a position that they don't even have. Um, they've been defined as you know denying there's any warming or denying climate change or denying CO2 as effect, which in fact is not our position at all. We say yes, the world is warmed and yes, man has contributed to it, but it's being grossly exaggerated by some really bad science in these climate models. Right. And, and, you know, science progresses by dissent, not consensus. So the whole consensus thing never made sense to me. At one point, you know, doctors thought that bloodletting was efficacious, and it's not. No, and no, just I know. Because... We'll find out that phlogiston causes climate change, right? So the history of science is, is riddled. But, I mean, look at, look at uh, even uh, the plate tectonics. I mean, the vast majority of of the scientific world just refused to accept plate tectonics until a very small number of folks, you know, just fought, and they were re- these small number of folks were ridiculed for years or decades for trying to push plate tectonics, and now it's accepted by everybody as you know that's that's probably what's going on. So so the world has often science has often turned on 
on outsiders, you know, having skeptical opinions about the, the, the majority science. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great uh, that's a great example because you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, you can be alone and still be right in science, and that that's what kills me. It's not up for a vote for crying out loud. Right. No, exactly. But I, you know, again, I, 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 you can you can sort of rank the science. Some of the climate science that gets done really is really well. The worst of the science is all this stuff about weather patterns, like this fire or this tornado or this hurricane proves. Um, you know, climate change. Now, I, one of the things I write about on my blog all the time is is the whole media thing of having a trend without a trend, that we're going to posit one data point, which is this hurricane, and from that data point, we're going to extrapolate the trend, which is climate change. It just makes me crazy. Though, and then when you go back and look at the data, you know, there's no change in hurricane frequency or hurricane size or hurricane landfalls, you know, across the world or even in the U.S. And so, over and over and over, the media keeps pushing these 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 trends from individual catastrophic events that aren't actually trends. They aren't even trends at all. And so, so the it's not just a political process. It's it's a really the the media has never done science well. But once we got an issue that the scientific that was made was this important, it's really shown up how poor the media is about dealing with these kind of scientific issues. Right, and the other issue too. So, some some of it is based on these computer models, and you know, the Club of Rome had computer models too, and they were wrong. I mean, garbage in, garbage out. Right? Yeah. It, it, there's some interesting. There was an interesting study done by these skeptics a couple of years ago that looked at a whole bunch of computer models, and they actually said, "Well, geez, how can all these guys have completely different?" assumptions about the sensitivity of climate. Sensitivity meaning how much will the temperature change, um, temperature change for a given amount of CO2. So they have completely different sensitivity assumptions, but they all claim to model history, right? And, and how is that even possible? I mean, well, only one of those can really be modeling history correctly. And it turns out they actually found the plug figure. There's, there's, I, I'm a longtime modeler. I will confess I've modeled business dynamics for a consultant. I've modeled financial models. And, and uh, model economics and and modelers all know there's often a plug figure that they use. There's some variable they use say to fudge the thing so it so it looks like it's matching history. Uh, now that doesn't last very long in Wall Street because eventually you go bankrupt if you if you try to actually act on a model that you fudged like that. But in the climate model, they found that there's certain variables, particularly the effect of of these cooling elements, that what these guys would do is they would say, oh, well, my mind, I have a very high sensitivity, and people would say, well, gee, why haven't we seen more warming if we've seen that much sensitivity? He says, oh, well, at the same time, we have all, we have all these other things that are artificially cooling it now, um, these SO2 and stuff like that, these different emissions, and once those go away, then you're going to see the warming, and there's going to be this big catch-up warming. So, so the, the modeling... I mean, it's a real mess, and there's, 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 and there's just because the journals are all controlled by the same folks that are alarmist on this stuff. There, there's just no real scrutiny on these guys, uh, on, on these things, or they're, they're, you know, being for, often not even being forced to archive their models so that you know other groups can come along and try to replicate what they do. I mean, that's the the, uh, the other climate doesn't even have a replication crisis. They talk about medicine. We have a replication crisis because they'll do these careful studies and, and then somebody else will come along and they can't replicate it. We don't have a replication crisis in climate because none of these studies will release their data or release their models so that anybody can even try to replicate it. So there's, there's no replication crisis because they've, they've 
pretty much forbidden replication of all the major studies. And when you have that situation, you know, there's just no accountability in the science. I mean, replication and is the way that we we find out whether coal fusion really works or not. You know, it's the, it's the way we it's the way we 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 get at all these kind of results that seem counterintuitive. Right, and when they, it seems like when they do release some of the data, it's disproven. Like we just had that mathematician who called out a big mistake in one of the reports just <laughs> right. last week or something. <laughs> Yeah, just as we are making progress getting climate scientists to release their data, now it's going to stop again because they just got, they just just it just showed up the errors. I mean, there's the one guy I remember. There's a, a guy trying to a guy named Steve McIntyre who for years and years were trying to FOIA this data out of one of these modelers, and finally he got the response back says, "Look, I don't have to share my data with you because all you're going to do with it is try to sh- prove that I'm wrong." I mean, that's that's not a very scientific attitude. No, not at all. You know, Ed, Ed had brought up one of your posts on one of our Free Rider Fridays where you had this, I thought it was a really innovative proposal about the carbon tax and the income tax and, you know, right. as, a, as a way of a bipartisan proposal. Can you explain that? We've got about three minutes or so, but or four minutes, right. but it'd be great. I, it started with three, I won't say insights, but three, I had three thoughts. Thought number one is, if you're going to go after CO2, a carbon tax is the best way. I mean, we won't get into all the economics, but all the other approaches are just goofy compared to you put a price on carbon and you let the market do the work. The second thing is, okay, if we're going to tax carbon, well, we're always going to tax stuff. I mean, I'm a hardcore libertarian, but I can acknowledge we're still going to tax a lot of stuff, right? So if we're going to tax a lot of stuff, why not shift some of that tax onto carbon? And the third thing that I started thinking about is, we are doing a lot of boneheaded stuff on climate. And this is classic Congress. Is, is They don't like to put something explicitly that's called a tax. What they like to do instead is do all these crazy programs like ethanol subsidies or electric vehicle subsidies or windmill subsidies or whatever that really have just as much real cost or even more cost than the carbon tax because not only you're spending money, but you're also spending it on the wrong stuff. So, but and so you're distorting the market on, and prices on top of everything else. So we're doing all this boneheaded stuff, you know, it, because we're not sort of doing this carbon tax. So combining all those together, I said, look, here's the deal that I think would be a bipartisan deal. One is you get rid of all the boneheaded stuff. You get rid of the ethanol subsidies. You get rid of the cafe standards. You get rid of the carbon tax. You get rid of, I'm sorry, you get rid of the windmill subsidies and the, the, the car subsidies and all those kind of things. The second thing you do is you put on a carbon tax you set the rate as whatever it needs, whatever it should be. There's a lot of science about what the price of carbon should be. And you let it do the work, not all those goofy studies. And the third thing is then you sort of say, okay, cut other, some other tax by the same amount. Why not cut payroll taxes? Payroll taxes, both carbon taxes would be, would be regressive, but so are payroll taxes. And, and in some ways, it might be better to shift payroll tax on the carbon because, you know, when, when the average citizen says, is the economy working, they're looking at, oftentimes they're looking at employment, you know, and wage growth. Well, you know, payroll taxes just, you know, just, just, just hurt that. So what if we shifted these payroll taxes that's hurting the one thing that people care most about, which is labor employment, and shift it onto carbon? And then people have more labor and they use less CO2 fuels and we get rid of all this distortive stuff. And, and the net, pro- I, I argue the net cost of that is, is not even a cost. It's a benefit because you got rid of the goofy stuff. The taxes aren't even higher and you're probably taxing something that's less disruptive than taxing labor. Right. And you know, that's, that's a great, 
great idea, and that's the problem with it. It's too logical. Do you think Congress would ever do it? I, you know what? I, I grew up in the, in the 70s. I grew up in doing deb- high school debate, and it was really, I thought that was a golden age of public policy. I mean, a lot of public policy was terrible, but it was a golden age of public policy discussion. And you actually had senators and congressmen who had crossed lines because they were expert in certain public policy, and they were acknowledged that, and they would not always toe the line with the party if they thought it was the right thing to do. We've gotten so tribalized now. I, I don't know how you could do it, because, because I even got it from, from all these folks that the skeptic friends of mine said, oh, how could, you give, how could you give those guys a victory? You know they're wrong. I said, well, it doesn't matter if they're wrong. You know, is this, thing, this thing's a better position than we are now. What's wrong with... You know, letting letting the folks who are concerned about global warming have their win as part of this too. But but letting the other side have a win or a perceived win is enough to to kill a lot of policy nowadays. It's very depressing. Right now, you know that's a great point about the '70s being really about policy and idea debates because that's where all the deregulation came in. You know, the airlines and uh, finance and trucking and all of that. And that was and and that was really bipartisan. Ted Kennedy led the charge on a lot of that during Ford and Carter administration. So great point. Unfortunately, Warren, I'm up against my time with you, but uh, folks would like to remind you if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Thank you all who uh, sent us emails regarding our show last week on this subscription business model. We really appreciate your feedback and please know we are going to be doing more on that topic as we dive deeper on it. And in the meantime, we want to hear from our sponsors. future of online tv is here view exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else visit voiceamerica.tv today clouds come in all shapes and sizes and the abacus private cloud is the perfect fit abacus cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You 
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And today on The Soul of Enterprise, we are interviewing Warren Meyer from Coyote Blog, as well as Climate Skeptic. I'm going to uh, shift a little bit here on you, Warren, because you, I think we've, we've talked a great deal about the climate change thing. But I, you have another proposal that you call a transpartisan plan number two. In fact, you were kind enough to uh, to do an updated blog on your latest thinking on this just a few days ago. And we'll post a, a link to this. In fact, I think it was yesterday. And regarding healthcare, and I have to say that this is one of the most innovative proposals I've seen in a long, long time. And like you, and I think in a previous blog, you said this, I, I love this, but I also absolutely detest it and hate it. So therefore, it must be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, look, I, I struggle with it because it's it, 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 unlike, it, I mean, in some of the ways, it's like the energy plan where, okay, let's let's do something maybe simpler for the government even if it's big and a big intervention but so we can sweep away all the stupid stuff and leave at least some room for the free market to work but i still struggle with it because it's a big intervention but i'm worried about a much worse intervention coming as you know our new um, you know democratic socialists I, are, have proposed crazy things i mean we had a there's a congressional bill with a hundred co-sponsors on it that one of the provisions is that you know, we're going to solve the health care cost problem by banning all private health care companies from making a profit. <laughs> and so in the face of that, it seems reasonable. In the face of maybe how we grew up thinking of health care, it may be too much of an intervention. Um, but I probably should explain it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about it because it's, it's just so yeah. fascinating. That, go, so go ahead. So, so here's, here, here's the deal. One of the things that frustrated me about Obamacare was it was – terribly muddled in its objectives, right? I mean, it was, we wanted to have, first we're going to expand insurance coverage. And that always made me crazy because insurance coverage is not a primary objective. That's not a need. I don't walk out of my, you know, cradle, you know, and grow up and say, boy, I really need insurance coverage. I mean, that's a proxy for a different need. And, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it also tried to get at cost it, tr- it reduced the total cost in the healthcare system. It tried to get at effectiveness of the healthcare system, and and all of that seemed nuts. And so I took a step back, and I think you saw this in the last election. I mean, I really think, in some extent, at least my analysis of where people's heads are at is is exactly right. So the core issue that people are concerned about is they don't want to either a face a healthcare crisis that they can't get the care they could have because they don't have the money to afford it. Or B, even if they can do that, they don't want to be personally bankrupted by it, uh, by that care. And that's the need. Insurance is sort of acting as a proxy for that. But, but our insurance and health care is nothing like insurance. It's like prepaid medical care because it's all this first-dollar insurance, and it's not really purely catastrophic. It's covering all kinds of crazy stuff, and it's covering, you know, doctors' appoint visits, you know, just for, for regular checkups and things. I'm talking about people, people really concerned about is, is that catastrophe sitting there and either, you know, grandma dies because they can't pay for her heart surgery uh, or, or, 
you know, the whole family is bankrupted because, you know, our baby was born with some considerable heart disease. And to keep on top of that, we've had to bankrupt ourselves to, to keep the baby alive. And that's really what they're, they're trying to do. And, and so the plan was aimed at that. And, and, and it said, look, get the, the other half of the other thing to acknowledge before I get to the plan is the, one of the biggest problems in healthcare is, 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 so much of it is third-party payer nowadays. Um, either the government pays for Medicare or, or Medicaid, or these insurance companies pay. And and I was just my I, I mentioned the grandma thing because my mother-in-law is going in for heart surgery, and we've talked to doctors and talked to doctors and talked to doctors, and we've talked hours and hours and hours. And one topic that has not come up a single time has been how much it's going to cost because we're not paying for it, and so we don't care. I don't care if it's $10 million. As long as the insurance company pays, I don't care. I don't care if they make certain decisions. If we just made certain decisions that were said, should we do this or that? Oh, I don't really know. You know, maybe Wednesday, maybe Tuesday. If Tuesday is a million dollars more than Monday, I'm still going to just say Tuesday if it's slightly more convenient for me because I'm not paying. And, and it's all it's very contrasted, for example, when I took my dog in. My dog was bleeding to death and had that surgery. And they gave an estimate for the dog that this is going to be $6,000. It's going to cost exactly this. Here are the odds of us being able to save the dog, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a very different experience in terms of the cost control and, and that, you know, they actually came in on that estimate. Same thing if I go in for LASIK because that's not covered by insurance. I actually really care about the cost. So if you take those two together, we said, geez, what if we had this role of the government that they're just going to do catastrophic insurance? They're, everybody's going to have catastrophic insurance of some sort so that you're never going to be out more than, say, 15 or 20% of your, gross, uh, of, your, of your income in a year. You're going to have to pay the, first, the 15 or 20% of what you make. You're going, to have to, you're going to have to pay after that. The government will have it covered, or maybe the government backs up private companies that will have it covered. Um, but less than that, um, you could go out and get insurance to cover that and probably get it pretty cheap, or else you're just going to shop for it, and you're going to shop for that care. Now, it still means that there's not a the, – the, the, what I was trying to get at here is to solve the real problem without – which is people being concerned about getting care uh, in a catastrophe without – nationalizing the whole healthcare system and, you know, killing the innovation and, and, and a million other things that could go on and maybe even making things a little better by, in certain spheres of the world, at least maybe not for cancer, cancer and things that would always be in the, above the 15%, but for a lot of care, routine care, maybe getting a little bit of shopping going that would actually cause uh, the price value equation of healthcare to improve over time because people are making intelligent choices that actually include costs and don't just ignore it. Yeah, and you know, and it, combining some of the things that we were talking about during the break, I think it would we would see a, a dramatic expansion in concierge or direct primary care type medicine where people would subscribe to a doctor, right? right. That they would go right. to because because that, that, I mean I think it's one of the barriers of concierge care is you sort of say, well, you know, I, I got your back for everything except you know if you're going to you know, have to be in intensive care for three years, I can't really, you know, that's really not going to be covered, right? But, but for, for everything else, your day-to-day, that, that would be a great relationship. I got a concierge medicine, it covers all these things, and then once it, you know, and then for the catastrophic things, there's, there's a different system that sort of handles that. And at the end of the day, 
you know, the one thing the government is good at, I mean, take cost. What in the world is the government good at managing cost? Name one thing. Everybody says, well, if the government's a single payer, they're going to have lots of leverage to, to get cost discounts. But that's, that's BS. It's just not going to happen for two reasons. One is cost discounts are always referenced to a market price. If you destroy the market price, there's no such thing as a discount anymore because because you don't have any reference price anymore. The, but the other part of it is, imagine an industry where the government buys all their output. There's the, they're already the one single buyer. Well, I can. It's called the defense industry. The defense industry is not well known for being a super efficient, low-cost environment. It's terrible. I mean, so, so to say that somehow the government is going to reduce costs, it was always a false objective um, through all of Obamacare. And you've seen that because Obamacare has done nothing but raise the costs of a lot of people's insurance. And effectiveness is the same thing. I, I always worry, effectiveness gets to be like picking winners back to the energy example. You know, I really like windmills, so I'm going to mandate windmills. In Obamacare, is like, I really like the idea of, of, of medical, you know, electronic medical records. Well, I, you know, I don't, there's a lot of problems with that. A lot of doctors hate it. A lot of patients hate it. In most cases, people haven't gotten any good care out of, extra better care out of that. But, you know, there's a few professors that thought it was a good idea, and there's, I'm sure there's a few medical records companies with big lobbyist uh, staffs that thought it was a great idea. And between them, you know, they've mandated it for everybody, unless it not just allowed individual providers to make their own choices about how to serve folks. So cost and effectiveness, whenever somebody starts talking about those things in healthcare. It, it makes me crazy because it just is our crazy goals. The one thing the government is really good at is having deep pockets because they have fiat tax power to just grab whatever money they need, and they're super big already, and that's what they're really good at. So the one thing they're maybe good at is being a backstop, being a, 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 a you know, being an insurer of last choice, last resort which, by the way, is what they do in flood insurance. And there's problems with flood insurance, but it's also what they do in, you know, with the banks and the deposit system, and there's problems with that and all kinds of, uh, of, of, of you know, bad incentives with that. But, but that's the one thing the government, we know they can do, is have money and be an insurer of the last resort. And so my plan was, I'm leery about it, but if we have to do something, the one something that maybe makes sense to me is to focus government on the one thing it can do, which is have deep pockets. Yeah, no, I think it's a fantastic idea. You know, it's it's funny when you were talking, I was reminded of a line I heard a while ago. It says, if you looked at the balance sheet of the U.S. government, you would quickly realize that what it is is a large insurance company with a, with an army, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> an army to make sure their premiums get collected. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we only got about one minute left, but I want to ask, ask you a specific question that I don't recall seeing, but perhaps you have addressed it, and that is, if if you say let's take your ten percent idea and the first ten percent yeah. we were all individually yeah. or a family responsible yeah. for, what percent of the transactions in the healthcare industry would that be currently? It's got to be somewhere like ninety percent, right? I, it, I the the average I was just reading the other day that the average uh, Medicaid uh, outlay per year per person is something like six thousand. So if that's the average and the, and it, the median has to be below that, just by the way that. The, those kinds of numbers work. So the median is going to be below that. So, so the median number is well under, I think, um, what would be 15 or 20% or 10% of somebody's income. Uh, I think it would be a lot of it. 
Um, I, I don't know. I don't have this. I can't. I can't dial up the CBO and ask them to score yeah. my plan. I don't really have that ability, and I'm, I'm not sort of in the in the in the field to do it. I remember um, the, the the person that really got me thinking about this was a uh, writer for now for the Atlantic. Uh, Megan, uh, no, Washington Post, I'm sorry, Megan McArdle, who I really respect a lot on her economic thinking and writing. And uh, she had put this out there and said the same thing. She says, you know, I just don't know how to get at costing this without, you know, sort of throwing the CBO at the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and just to, to mention well, before our, our break, I, I have uh, oftentimes on Facebook argued with people on this. And when I throw your proposal out, I have to say that both people on the right and the left seem to say, well, I'd have to think about that. It's not somebody who just outright dismisses it. Now, like you said, it's going to be t- tough to get through Congress, but we'll have to see. But right now we're up against our last break. Hopefully Ron can ask you a few more questions to follow up on that because it's a, a great proposal. I want to remind you, you can get a hold of Ron or me. Ask TSOE at Verisage. Is the, .com is the email address. The Soul of Enterprise is the website. We also do have our Patreon site, which is patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can listen to shows without commercial interruption as well as our bonus episodes after the fact. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Warren Meyer of the Coyote Blog. And Warren, picking up on your conversation with Ed about proposals that both sides seem to hate, which is probably a leading indicator that there's something something good about it. Um, I wanted to ask you, what's your position on the universal basic income? 
You know, I'm kind of intrigued by it, actually. But again, it's almost in the spirit of the last one. Is it only works if you throw out... I mean, we have like, what, 109,000 overlapping, you know, sort of welfare... <laughs> type programs, you know, from if you think of all the housing programs and all the single family and all the medical programs and everything else. I mean, the good, th- if, you, if you do it right, and the proposals I see don't always do it right, but if you do it right and sort of give it to everybody, uh, you just, if you're going to give a UBI, you give it, to, you give it to absolutely everyone. You don't actually index it to, uh, you don't take it away with higher income levels because if you do that, you're, you're messing up the whole point. The whole point of universal basic income is unlike all these other welfare programs, there's no disincentive to work. It doesn't reduce the marginal value or the marginal income of your first hour of work. A lot of these places you, you, you work for 10 hours, you go from working nothing and you get all this, this welfare money and then you start working 10 hours and you might make $100 from that, but it just disqualified you from $1,000 of benefits by that 10 hours of labor or that $100 of income. Right. And so, so, so you have actually this huge disincentive to work. The one value of the UBI is, is, is just that, is you don't ha- if you build it right, you don't have that disincentive to work. It just said, hey, everybody's got a safety net. This is what it is. Um, and, you know, we'll probably argue it up and down over time, but we'd have to have the discipline to throw out all those other programs. And the problem with all those other programs is they have, you know, hundreds of thousands of administrators whose jobs depend, you know, on those other programs existing. And, and even third parties who, you know, a lot of those are distributed through nonprofits, you know. And so you have all these nonprofit agencies whose funding comes from, you know, distributing and managing the income of, from all these, you know, various programs. So it would be, it'd be tough to do it right. It would, it, it's almost like when people talk about a, having a, having a, um, oh, uh, like a VAT. You know, we say, oh, it'd be great if we replaced, you know, all the taxes we had with the VAT. Yeah, it would be great if we had replaced all the taxes we had with the VAT. It would be, it'd be terrible if we kept all the taxes we had and added a VAT on top, which is more likely to happen. So that's what I worry about with the UBI is it would be great to replace all the programs we have with the UBI. I think it would be better, a better idea. The, the problem is it would be terrible if we kept all the programs we had and added a UBI on top of it. Right, right. That's, that's Charles Murray's proposal, a constitutional amendment to get rid of everything else, including the Social Security, and then just give everybody the UBI, as you say. But uh, that seems like it doesn't uh, fly politically in these, in, in these times. But, yeah, I just, just wanted to get your, uh, your opinion I on that. I wonder if we'll you, ever have a constitution. I have a bet with somebody whether or not we'll ever have another constitutional amendment in our lifetime. First is people have sort of given up on it. They said, well, let's, let's go, to, you go to the court. We don't need a constitutional amendment. We'll go to the courts and get them to change their interpretation of the Constitution. That's better than a, an amendment. But, I mean, can, can you even picture nowadays three-quarters of the states voting for anything? Anything. <laughs> to think I, it, any it, it's a great point. Get their three-quarters of the states. Right. No, it's like the people that talk about a state, you know, convention, an amendments convention or whatever. I don't see that happening either. And that that that's got some merit to it as well. But I just don't think it's it's doable. Uh, you also wrote another blog post that really intrigued me about doing business in California and, huh. and how your business you've pulled out of California just because the, the amount of regulations in the state and this labor regulation specifically, you're not you're not so much talking about the taxes, you're talking about just the regulatory environment. Can you kind of explain why you've, you're pulling out of California? 
Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I used to argue with libertarians and conservatives who would always, the first thing they talk about is business climate. And I said, and they talk about taxes. And I said, well, yeah, I'd love to talk about income taxes, but first I have to make some before the <laughs> income taxes even, even come into play. California is, one of the, I wrote an article in Regulation Magazine this summer about how labor regulation affects uh, unskilled labor. And that's what we hire. We, uh, it's not that my people aren't skilled, but the jobs are basically unskilled. They're, you know, mowing and cleaning bathrooms and such. Many of them are actually are skilled folks, but filling in unskilled jobs. But anyway, for unskilled job positions, it is really, really difficult to hire those folks anywhere in the world to employ them. And it's almost impossible. It became impossible in California because not only do you have the you know, minimum wage marching up to 15, but you also have just this just this raft of, of labor regulation, some, some really small, like, you know, they, they can sue you if, you know, they, they work through their lunch break or ask to work for the lunch break. Or even if, in my case, where they asked, hey, could I work through my lunch break? I'd like to have an extra 30 minutes. And we said, sure. And then they sued us for breaking the law right after that. And I had to pay out, you know, thousands of dollars to those guys. And so between Cal OSHA and all the regulations, it's just, it's no one thing. But, but it's just hundreds of hundreds of things. And I, I, th- there's a concept like about the, you know, the singularity in technology, and technology starts moving so fast that you can't sort of keep up with it. I talked about in California the regulation singularity, that regulations were being added so fast we couldn't, as a small company, do the compliance work to, and the training work of our employees to keep up with it. I mean, this last year, I forget how many total bills passed in California, but it was thousands and thousands and thousands. And do this every year. And it's, yeah. just, it's just an extraordinarily difficult environment to do business in. Yeah, you, you cite that uh, Governor Brown has decided on nearly 20,000 bills in his, near, yeah, in his 16 years as governor. I remember. I, 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 but, but, and you know, and, and a lot of those, not all of them, of course, but a lot of them are regulatory bills or have impact on businesses and how you run your business. I mean, you just, you, from small ones, like suddenly we've got to go in and learn the Calosha system because we have to now submit all our injury numbers to Calosha every year through this, through this uh, electronic portal instead of over paper, and I've got to train somebody to do that, and there's bugs in the system, so you have to call up the, the guys in, the, in their office to deal with I mean, but it's just that thousands of times over. And so it's very hard to communicate to people because any example you pick, they say, well, you know, you could do that. I said, yeah, you can do that, but what happens when you have to do that on a thousand different things every year? It, it just becomes it, overwhelming. Right, right. You know, we've only got two minutes, Warren, and I got two really quick questions for you. So short okay. answers on these, at least. But you, I loved how you talked about Elon Musk is not the smartest guy in the world. He he would have been fabulous at coming up with each issue's cover story for popular mechanics. He's kind of one of our favorite whipping boys. We call him a welfare queen. But do you think Tesla would sell as well as it is in this country if it wasn't subsidized? Uh it- I think the first burst of sales, you've got these people that really believe that Tesla is not a real capitalist country company, that they're on a mission. And they really bought into the mission. I have no problem with that. I, I don't agree that Tesla is a good ex- example of that mission. But if you believe in a company that is on a mission, that's great. I think they would have had initial burst of sales from that. I think their sales are falling off right now when their subsidy goes away. They've penetrated those the, the fanboys, and I think they're going to have a real problem over the next two or three quarters, keeping the demand up like they did in the last quarter. Right, right. And in the final minute, I just have to ask you, what's your novel BMOC about? 
I, I actually, uh, the, it, this isn't really what it's about, but I'll tell you, the quick backstory is, I, I'm not very good at cocktail parties, I'm kind of an introvert, and so I would, I would, my wife would take me and I would get bored, and I'm not very good at meeting people, and I never know what to say to them, so I would make up professions for myself. For example, I made up a profession that I actually bought fountains for malls, and I would install the fountain free of charge to the mall if the mall let me collect all the coins that people throw in the fountain. And I made up a whole set of economics around this. And so I used to make up businesses like that, like patenting elevator tones and things like that. And so I, I took all those businesses that I made up in cocktail parties, and I whomped them all together into a mystery novel. How fantastic. That sounds great. Well, Warren, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on The Soul of Enterprise. We really appreciate it. And Ed, what's up next week? Ron, next week we're rerunning our show, Scroogeonomics, Why You Should Not Buy Gifts for People during the Holidays. Just in time for Black Friday. I love it. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please do feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. <laughs>